0: Hello, I'm Elizabeth, an obsessive backyard gardener who might be able to offer you a couple of tips.
1: And I'm Keith, a landscape consultant, and I'm also passionate about gardening.
0: The one thing we both have in common is muddy, muddy boots. boots. Welcome to another Q&A segment. Thanks so much to everyone for sending in their questions. We have multiples from one of our listeners this week, which is great. If you have more than one question, please don't hesitate to send them in. The more the merrier. And if you sent in a question or questions this month, please don't forget to listen out for your name at the end of the session. You could be this month's very lucky winner of a fantastic prize from The Plant Runner. Keith, question number 1 is from Dave. I've heard that the Yarra Ranges Council is getting rid of fruit trees in nature strips due to fruit fly. Can you please talk about fruit fly and what they can do to or what the people can do to reduce the risk?
1: Okay so yes there's been a confirmed outbreak of Queensland fruit fly and it is moving down and this is this outbreak is now in the in the Yarra Ranges so the infected fruit need, that need to be collected and safely disposed of fruit trees that, that have been planted um, in nature strips have been removed to stop the spread of this terrible pest mm. it's, it's going to come down to us and it's going to get into our tomatoes and all our other fruit trees mm. and we are going to be in a, in a terrible way so managing it now in in situations that are, that are not controlled like nature strips is a great way of, of looking after it because what we have to understand is that the fruit tree industry just in the Yarra, Yarra, um, Yarra Ranges area is worth over 700 million dollars oh all right so the the first thing you do is pick up any fallen fruit bag and bin it. Secondly, after your fruit tree has pollinated, net your tree securely, and you use a you use a, a an exclusion net which has got a two mil micron, and that's a two mil screen that will stop the fruit fly getting in. Lastly, there are there are traps called Sara C-E-R-A, traps C E R A traps, and that attract both the male and the female fruit fly, and these are simply hung in the trees, um, and and they will they will do their job in there. Oh, that's good. There's nothing worse than finding maggots in your fruit or finding half maggots in your fruit. Mm, yeah. So, okay. um, so that's it's, – it's, and it's a worry, you know, and this is the Queensland fruit, not the Mediterranean, which is over in WA. Oh, God. We'll so we've got, we've got them coming from meat. both ways. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: That sounds terrible. That's scary. Okay, our next question is from Natalie. I have two 20-year-old neglected apple trees, a Jonathan and a Golden Delicious. They are too tall to net, so for many years only the birds and possums have enjoyed their fruit. I would love to get them back to a manageable size and shape. I've read that apple trees should be pruned in winter after their leaves have fallen, but I've also read that you should prune in summer if you want to reduce size, so I'm a little bit confused. What is the best time to prune them and how much should I remove at a time?
1: Okay. Natalie my suggestion here is to do a a, do a prune in winter but do it to half the the apple tree so pick half half the apple tree and cut it back quite hard cut it back to a size that you are happy to, to work with and a size that you can get a net over and there's lots of different nets now that are you know up to two and a half meters in box shape that'll cover a tree of that size so half do half the tree this year, and then next year, do the other half. And that way, you know, you're going to manage the tree in a much lighter way. And then you lightly prune um, the, the first half in the, in the second season of growth. Does that make sense? So am um, trying we, to work it we, out. We, well, we, we're going to cut the tree back, half the tree back hard one year, and then do the other half the following year, but the half that's – we did last year. is going to put a little bit more growth on. We're going to cut that back to a manageable yeah, height.
0: that makes so sense. That's, that's, yep. That
1: makes sense? Yep. Um, and then you'll be able to identify the new growth by, um, by its smooth branches with no fruit spurs on it. So they, all those need to come off. Mm. The following winter, when you've pruned the other half back, um, it'll be you, you've got, then you've got a manageable size tree mm. that you can actually put a decent net over. And mm. an exclusion netting is going to be the, the, the best way to do it. Summer pruning... And the reason you do this is to tidy up the overgrowth of new branches and leaves that um, that don't have any fruit on them. That's just useless. You want, you want the, the old growth that's going to have the fruiting spurs on them that you can actually control. I hope that helps.
0: Fantastic. Good luck with that, Natalie. Now for a question from Charlotte, who sent us a photo of her apple tree and says, this is a weeping apple, but I guess incorrect pruning has resulted in these uprights. I'm not sure if I should hang heavy objects on those uprights to bring them down or should I prune them off?
1: Hi, Charlotte. The best thing to do is to prune them off and you you just cut these off and you cut them off with a rough saw. Don't use a pair of secateurs because if you make a a, a nice clean cut on that, it will reshoot. Ah. So a rough cut destroys the fruiting buds. But what's happening is that your, your weeping part of the tree is grafted onto the top of an upright growing plant. And it is the, what's happening is that through the center of that upright part of the, the, of the, the trunk, you're getting the, the original part of the, the, the growth coming straight up, not the weeping form. So hack those off. Even if you can rip them off with your, with your hands, if you're strong enough, rip them off. And that'll stop, that'll kill that, 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 that bud from regrowing. Um, so that, that, that really rough method just prevents any regrowth.
0: Okay, now she has another question. I've heard that it's of real benefit to collect seeds of your own vegetables and use them for the next sowing. And then over time, you end up with vegetables that are really suited to your specific conditions. My question is regarding beans. The bushes are still green, but there is not much more picking action. I've left some of the beans to keep growing with the seed collection in mind. Do I wait until the plant is dead and the bean pods all dried before I pick those? I guess that will mean less worry about them going mouldy over the storage period.
1: Right, well, I've, I've just harvested my baby sunbeam pods. Um, I allowed them to dry on the bush so they're nice and dry and that it should go like a real papery effect. And, and in order to determine whether or not they're, they're ready to be picked off, um, you need to, to grab a pod and break it open. If it breaks open really easy and there's no resistance to that pod, those, those beans are dry enough inside. But just to make sure, put them into an open envelope, and on the envelope mark down what they are. So baby sun harvested on this particular day, da di da di da, this year, um, and then just leave them in that. Leave them in the open env- envelope. So it's getting air and so forth around them for a couple of weeks before you then go and get a little silica, silica gel out of a new handbag or a new pair of shoes or something, throw that into, into that envelope, seal it over and put it into, into the fridge at four degrees Celsius and those beans will last for years and years and years.
0: Fantastic. Okay, moving on to a question from Melissa. She also has a question about collecting seeds. I would love to know some tips on saving seeds. Saving seeds for beans are quite easy, but do you have any tips for the juicy fruits? I usually pop tomato seeds on a paper towel and then try to pick them off when they've dried. Not the easiest of tasks, and I'm not sure if it's the cleanest or best way to do this. I'd also like to know the best way to store them for next season.
1: I love hearing questions on seed saving. I think it's fantastic. Yes. Best ways to save seeds from tomato are to select the best performing tomatoes on the bush. And what you do is once that that tomato has has become very mature, so it's it's starting to go soft, not firm, but starting to soften right up, um, what you need to do is you scrape out the seeds with the pulp. So you've got that all that gooey stuff inside. And then you place these into an open glass jar. Don't add water or anything else. Just leave them in there. And then you go and stick them in your grandson's bedroom or your son's bedroom. What? Yeah, <laughs> the best place for them because they ferment and they'll stink. <laughs> The kids will never, will never, the boys will never ever notice the difference. But it's the best way, best way of doing it. So they will ferment and they'll go very, very smelly. And this can take a few weeks for it to work. And then what you're looking at is this green scum that will form on the top. And you have a look at the seeds. And if you've got seeds that are floating on, floating in high in that that pulpy stuff, they're the seeds to discard. You want the heavy seeds that will sink to the bottom because they are more viable. So they're absolute rippers. And then what you need to do then is you take off the the floating seeds and discard those. You tip that gooey, mucky stuff into a steel colander, all right, and then underneath the tap, turn the tap on, and then you wash all that gunky stuff off. Through, so all you're left with at the end are just the seeds, and what happens is that that process of, of fermentation removes um, a glutinous substance around the seeds that prevent them from germinating. Mm. All right, and because the germination process is normally done through a bird eating this, eating the seed, and then popping it out, that ferment, fermentation, <laughs> ah. that glutinous stuff has been removed from the seed. So then what you do is you then put those seeds on, onto a paper towel, spread them out, let them dry on that paper towel, write what variety they are, the date and so forth, and just leave them. Let them dry for two or three weeks on that paper towel, and then you can either individually break them off and leave them stuck to the paper towel because that'll be a, a great process to provide a little bit of additional germination when you do plant them yeah. in, in the in the seed next year. Um, and then put them into a, into a, a, a container with a, a silica gel thing in there again and in the fridge, and they will last for years and years and years.
0: Well done, Keith. I love this. Okay, another question from Charlotte. Now I've gone back to Charlotte. Mm-hmm. She would love us to record a podcast on wicking beds. Now, I've added that to the list, Charlotte, so thank you for that suggestion. Today's question, the third question, I think, is I've inherited four concrete wicking beds at my new home and I'm wondering if they are set up well and what I need to know about them. I ended up putting asparagus in one and strawberries in another. I'm not sure if they're successful as they seem quite dry still.
1: Okay, there is a real science involved with the wicking bed system. Um, soil will wick, and what that means is that, that through capillary action, that wetted soil at the, at the base in a reservoir will work its way up vertically through the soil profile. But this is where the problem lies, is that the very top part of your garden bed will dry out. And if you're putting in, in plants in seeds, you've got to water from the top in order to germinate them and let them get their roots down into that wetted area. Or if you're putting in a plant like strawberries, you've got to make sure that their roots are going to be deep enough to get down towards to where that, that moisture is. There is a real science involved with, with this. Um, and the easiest thing to do is to have a look at um, a business called Modbox who are based here in Hastings on the Mornington Peninsula, have a look at their system of of wicking beds because that is foolproof. Their system is foolproof. But what it is basically is there is a reservoir down the bottom and that can be um, lined with plastic and that has got scoria in the bottom and there's generally about 200 mil of scoria. And then over the top of the scoria is a geofabric, that um, doesn't allow the, the soil to wash down in, into that reservoir. Uh, when you fill that reservoir up with water, it wicks through the, the geo fabric in as capillary action into the soil profile, but it only wicks 300 mil. So if you've got a bed that's 500 mil deep, the first 200 mil is going to be dry ass. Oh, but as I said, there's a real science to it. Have a look at Modbox, Modbox. because... He he, Modbox is owned by Marco Beretta, who is an engineer, and he's worked this out a treat. knows exactly how it works. So that's my that's my easy solution for that answer that question.
0: Fantastic! And I've just seen another question from Charlotte. One more. I lost some salvia's last year. I obviously cut them back too hard, and the frost didn't help. I've been told that there are different types with different requirements. How will I be able to make the distinction? Are there telltale signs, and which ones can be chopped right back and then regrow again?
1: Okay, so salvias tell you when to prune them back. You leave the long canes on on the flowers, with the flowers on them for as long as possible. And what you're looking for uh, is the new growth of basal leaves at the very very bottom, um, and they'll they'll appear at the bottom on most salvias. Not all salvias, but most salvias. If if there's no basal leaves then you need to leave those salvias to winterize. that is to get right through to the, almost the end of winter, and then you cut back all those dead canes, and that plant should regrow from the bottom. All right, So that's, that's probably the easy way to do it. But if you have a variety that does not produce those basal canes, then just leave them, leave the canes to die right off before you do anything with it. Um, and what you can do then is, is, is apply a light application of compost over the base if there's no leaves, uh, to prevent frost damage for the new new growth and, and a bit of food from when the plants take off in spring.
0: Fabulous, Done. fabulous, fabulous. Good luck, Charlotte, with all of that. That'll keep you busy for a while. Um, Anna has a question now. I'm looking at starting our orchard this winter. Can you give me some more information on cross-pollination for both apples and cherries? I'm located in central west New South Wales.
1: Okay, so central central New South Wales, west. Up that, yeah, central west New South Wales, you might get some good frosts up there. Um, I know that um, I'm doing one at the moment, which is um, near near um, Canberra. Somewhere. So it's so it's, it's going to have you know some nice frost. Queen Anne up up that way. Right. Um, so so they've got good frosts up there, and then what that means is that you can actually pick lots and lots of varieties of of fruit trees that have low chill factors or high chill factors either way it's going to work it's not going to matter um, in terms of cross-pollination the, the most most obvious apples to uh, as cross-pollinators are granny smith and jonathan's so they're the two that you start off with and then you'll you'll find that most other um, varieties of apples that you pick will pollinate with those two as the cross-pollinators Does that makes sense
0: yeah plenty
1: Right. So so what you're looking for are, 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 are fruit trees that are going to be flowering at about the same time yeah. as the other variety that you've got. Right. Cherries, for instance, you can get Stella, which is a cross-pollinator for most other other cherry varieties, such as Lapin, Um And and Stella's also um, a self-fertile variety anyway. And the same with pears. You need to make sure that you've got pears that are going to be flowering at the the same time. Uh, Plums, same thing. So if you're going to go for um, European plums, um, something like the uh, Dargen prune, which is the the French prune, will cross-pollinate with um, lots of other varieties that that, that are around that time. Um, Something like Coe's Golden Drop, um, yeah, so there's there's lots of lots of opportunities for, for cross pollination with all of those particular plants, mm-hmm. but you've just got to make sure that the varieties are going to be flowering at the same time. Yeah, everything flowering, yeah. Um, the 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 red red plums, the red um, plums, which are the, the the Japanese plum, Santa Rosa will cross with Mariposa, will cross with with um, Satsuma, so all of those varieties will cross pollinate. So pretty easy.
0: You're very clever, Keith. Oh, thank very you. Very clever. <laughs> Our lucky last question for this Q&A is from Scott. This is a, this is a big one. I've recently bought my first house and I'm planning my first garden. I would like to create an English cottage-style garden, but I'm conscious that English plants might not stand up to our harsh summers. Oh, yeah. I'm also aware that native bees prefer native plants and would like to provide food and habitat for them. What native plants can you suggest that would give me the look of an English cottage-style garden? Keith?
1: All right. Well, cottage gardens are a beautiful style and they attract many birds, bees and butterflies. Uh, And many of those are actually native to Australia. But bees, the butterflies and the birds and all these sorts of things are not going to just go for australian natives they will go for just about anything um in, in fact when I, I worked for the diggers club we had a, a trial garden right through the center we'd had all these different varieties of, of perennial plants and i saw more different birds in in that one space more dragonflies butterflies than i've ever seen in my whole life just because it was an attraction yes. for all those beautiful those beautiful and things.
0: Fire, I have uh, so many bees attracted to so yeah. many plants that are definitely not native right now, yep. so yeah, there are so many options that aren 't native
1: um, and the, there's, there's lots of wholesale growers of, of, of cottage garden plants today um, which they, they wouldn 't be growing them if they, they weren 't tolerant of our, our hard uh, Australian yeah. conditions. Yeah. And you know, over the years I've designed many cottage gardens for, for clients that have been incredibly su- successful and not many of those actually had native plants in them. You know, yep. so that's the thing. Yep. Wholesale n- nurseries would not survive by growing cottage plants that, that just weren't viable. They'd be out. Mm. And some of the, the, the great ones to actually have a Google at or have a visit at for um, growing these, these, these beautiful perennial cottage plants are businesses like Tavistock Nursery, uh, antique perennials, Frogmore Nursery, Lambley's Nursery, and these are just to name a few. Mm. Um, so, bang, away you go.
0: Yeah, there are so many plants to mention, you just couldn't mention them all. There are plenty of natives and there are plenty of um, non natives. A oh, beautiful
1: p- cottage, proper cottage, cottage perennials, yeah, yeah. That exactly. will work and grow beautifully in our conditions.
0: Good luck with that, Scott. Thank you, Keith. We're running out of time now. Thank you to everyone out there for sending in their questions. Please keep them coming either by DM to our Muddy Boots Instagram or Facebook pages. We've got a new Facebook page. Or by emailing gardengirl at aussiemail.com.au. And please don't forget to let us know if there are any specific topics that you'd like to discuss or you'd like us to discuss as a main podcast. We would love to hear from you. Now for the Q&A prize winner. This month's prize goes to Charlotte. We heard her name a bit this time. How could it not with all those wonderful questions? (laughs) Congratulations, Charlotte. We'll be in contact with you shortly. Thanks again, as always, to the team at The Plant Runner for supplying the fabulous monthly Q&A prize. Visit theplantrunner.com for all their wonderful products. Thank you for listening to Muddy Boots. For more information on today's podcast, please go to muddyboots.net.au and happy gardening.